Hello, we're Scott and Maureen Proctor, and this is Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast, where today we're going to be talking about Hosea chapters 1 through 6 and 10 through 14, as well as the book of Joel. And there is so much wonderful stuff to study in this these chapters, so we can't wait to do it. But first, we want to tell you about the new calendar that we have created for 2023. It's a Come Follow Me calendar with, of course, all the reading assignments listed week by week. But it has the most wonderful, stunning photographs of the New Testament and some scenes for the New Testament. And Scott, I'm going to let you tell them about it because you created it. Well, this is the fourth year we've done a calendar and it's been wonderful to go through this process. And we were just looking at the calendar before this podcast and this the cover image is of this young man named Majd. He was our the man who played Jesus as one of our actors that we hired in Nazareth. He was born and raised in Nazareth. He's 28 years old. And the day we saw him, because we didn't have to, I mean, we didn't have any way to screen. We thought we'd be able to screen at least 200 faces or something before we chose who would be Jesus. And he just came and said, oh, here's the person that we have. And he was perfect. He was just so wonderful. And he just knew the scriptures. He loved the Lord. He was just so kind to everyone. And we just love shooting him. So he is on the cover carrying a sheep. And then we have all these beautiful images. And I think this is something that will really add to your homes and add to your studies of the New Testament this next year. And it's easy to find. You just go to latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash 2023. Just the numbers, 2023. latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash 2023. And we think that you'll enjoy this. And I think your families would love this. It's a great Christmas gift. Well, it's a great Christmas gift to give to friends too. It's it's affordable and beautiful and inspiring. So it's wonderful. And Scott, we have a guest today with us on the podcast. We do. We have Patrick Dane with us and we love Patrick. He works at the Institute in Logan, right next to Utah State University. He has immersed himself in the ancient world, and he loves the scriptures, and it shows in the things that he says, because as we talk to Patrick, and we've had him on here before, I have to say, every time we're done with the podcast, I go away thinking, I need to study the scriptures more, because I love all of his insights, and I want to learn more and more and more. So anyway, we're grateful to have Patrick with us. He loves his family. He loves the Old Testament. He understands so many things about the Old Testament. And so let's begin. And first of all, Patrick, I just look at that name, Hosea, and that means salvation. It's similar to the name of Jesus. Yeshua means salvation. And so it's it's a, a powerful name, but he starts by giving us this image of the Lord and his people, and he is the husband and his people are the bride. And that whole imagery of marriage is all through this first part of Hosea. What do you see in that? Oh, yeah, truly. And, and thank you for having me on as well. I, I th- This to me is the text that deals with this wonderful motif of the bride and the bridegroom uh, that is ubiquitous in the scriptures. It's everywhere. You think of Jesus's parable of the bridegroom that's coming and the 10 virgins or or the marriage of the lamb in Revelation, or you think about uh, 
uh, Isaiah's imagery of of the bride of Christ and these sorts of things. But you, you say, okay, what sort of relationship is this? And you see it play out here in Hosea, particularly uh, the first three chapters. And 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 really, as, as it goes back, as we go back to why is the Lord using a marriage motif here? And I, I really do believe it comes back to the idea of what a covenant is and the idea of knowing something or knowing someone very particularly. I think both of those, in fact, you'll see this in chapter um, chapter four come up where we're being destroyed because of lack of knowledge. And what does it mean to actually know God and what does it mean to to not know him and 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 maybe to talk about the, the importance of why the marriage motif, I think it would be important to talk about the idea of what knowing is. And the Hebrew word for know is, is yada, which it's more than just intellectual assent. It's, it's having a, a, a communion with and uh, the two separate things becoming one. And that's the essence of a covenant relationship, though, as, as you think about that. A, a covenant is not just a, a two-way promise. That's very transactional. That's not all it is. But as you look at gospel covenants, these are promises given on both sides where the promises are such that they are designed to bring the two separate entities to become one. And, and that's what a marriage is. That's what it means to know. That's what God is. I really, that that's his project. That's his relationship that he's seeking to bring us to. And what better example can he use than the marriage metaphor? Because it incorporates the idea of knowing Adam, uh, knew his wife Eve, and she bare into him children. That, there's the idea of yada, where something new has been created when two separate entities come together like this in a relationship. And you, so you'll see this marriage uh, metaphor played out with Hosea being a type for Jesus Christ and, and Gomer, uh, this wife that plays the prostitute and how he brings her back and what does he do to bring her back and what does it look like? What is the purchase price even? In fact, the purchase price is indicative of the price paid for us as well in Hosea 3. So there's many things to consider here about how God brings us back. And we're not in a transactional relationship. We are in a marriage relationship with him. And so I think there's just so much to explore here. Well, and even when we begin to compare that with what we understand ourselves about marriage, there is someone in the world, a human being who knows us better than any other human being, who has borne with us through our difficult times, who loves and supports us when we are happy, when we are sad, who is connected with us, who is one flesh with us. You know, you love all the people in the world but you love your spouse in a whole different way because you are one. And I love that that is the image that God uses for this covenant connection we have, that the differences or distinctions between us will dissolve as we become one with him and closer to him as we begin to adopt his attributes. It's a beautiful image. I also love that when in the New Testament, when there are those people at the door who are not let into the, the marriage feast, and, and in the King James Version, it says, I never knew you, but Joseph Smith changed it to say, ye never knew me. And that's just such a really interesting and powerful change. And I took notes in my margins years ago. I mean, I think this is probably 20 years ago in Hosea, and it's it was about being a perfect husband, a perfect husband, which is the depiction of the Lord here, the bridegroom. 
He's a protector. He's a provider. He has perfect love. He gives us safety. He's loyal. He's patient. He's inspired. He receives revelation. He knows us. Absolutely. And I just, I just love this whole imagery between the bridegroom and the bride and how beautiful this is. And I love Patrick, your depiction of that knowledge and how important that is in this relationship. Well, and he won't break this relationship. Only we are inclined to break the relationship. As he describes Israel here, when they go to idolatry, when they go a whoring after other gods, you know, this is absolutely turning their back on this extreme connection that they have been invited to have with the Lord. And Patrick, talk to us about those three children that he has with Gomer, because each one of them has a name that's important, and each it's like a type of the of Israel, and it's fascinating to look at this a little more deeply. Yeah, they tr- uh, truly, uh, names are, uh, from the ancient Near Eastern perspective, are acts of creation. When you give someone a name, uh, you are giving them a name and a blessing. You are declaring uh, what they are to become, what they are to be, and in, in, uh, a, a new purpose in life, a new relationship you have with others relative to what your name is. You see, uh, the Lord did this with, you know, Simon, thou art Peter, or uh, or Zacharias is uh, naming their child it becomes John, and so these these name names become highly significant. And you'll see the three children born here of Hosea and Gomer are highly significant. The first one you'll see in Hosea 1 verse 4, where the Lord instructs him to call his name Jezreel, which can be rendered, uh, God is sowing, and the image of sowing something in the soil. And uh, there's judgment that's coming. That's also the name of uh, the traditional, the Jezreel Valley, right off the Nazareth uh, Ridge there that extends all the way down into Bethshan to Jordan, the Jordan River Valley, where, where the battle of all nations uh, comes. It has been said that the Jezreel Valley has more blood spilt there than any other single valley in the history of the world. It's the intersection of three continents, not countries. Um, anyone who's someone who wants to conquer another country in that part of the world will go through the Jezreel Valley. And so what God is doing there and what, and what he's going to sow and, and the blood that's being uh, sown here, what God is trying to transform us to is from acts of bloodshed, acts of violence, acts of selfishness, where God can sow something new. Uh, in fact, he's going to sow his own seed within us, where as, as we grow and as we develop, we, we take upon ourselves his image as his new child, as his new creation. That's the idea of Jezreel. It's not just blood that's being sown. He's going to sow himself into us. You see this with the parable of the, of the sower, or uh, you see the image of, of Lehi leaving Jerusalem, where they take many seeds, agricultural, and then he talks about the seed of his children, uh, reproductive seeds there, where what is God trying to sow? What have you sown? And what am I trying to sow? And you'll see that with the name of Jezreel. And, and then you also see in verse 6, where a daughter is, Lohru Hama, where you can look at the footnote on, on these things, many of them, it's, it's one who has not obtained mercy. And I do enjoy how the Lord changes their names later, later on, because now she does have mercy, or now she is sown in righteousness, or in, like Lo Ami, the third child, where not my people, now it's Ami, you are my people. 
where the name it becomes indicative of who you are and what you are doing right now relative to to God's work. Right now, you are not mine because you have separated yourself uh, from my presence by, as well as he says in uh, chapter 2, verse 5, your mother hath played the harlot. You're going after your many lovers. Therefore, I must bring you back. And these children are indicative of this, what the state of the relationship is right now and what the relationship can be if you truly are allow yourself to have God, sow, his seed sown within us. And it, to me, I find how the process of how God does that is absolutely beautiful. And if I can may be so bold, I don't see it taught better in any other Old Testament text than in the book of Hosea. That is to say, the process by which God takes us from our false gods into a loving relationship as a husband, not as a master. In fact, he even says that later. He says, not as a master, I am your husband. That's the sort of relationship he desires with us. And you can see that with the names of the children. It's interesting, too, in Alma 32, where this seed of knowledge and, and faith is growing in us gradually to become the tree of life. And so the tree of life is part of us. It has become part of us through this process. And that is really the same idea of having something sown in you to make you in the end one with the Lord. So much so that the tree of life is in you, is with you, is a part of you. You typically see Alma 32 as the process of developing faith, but you're right. In Alma 33, with Alma's own commentary, Alma 33, verse 22, he talks about you must begin, this is Alma 33, verse 22, begin to believe in the Son of God, he says. And then in verse 23, he says, you must plant this word in your hearts. The word or the seed is Jesus Christ. Faith is the process by allowing that seed to grow within you, uh, which is Jesus Christ. Ultimately, it results in becoming the tree of life, and he is the tree of life. And what is that process like? What does that look like? He's, we are, as Doctrine and Covenants section 109 says, in the, the purpose of the temple is that we might grow up in thee and receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost. It's a, it's a growth process. We're becoming trees of righteousness. That's Isaiah 61, verse 3, where he says that. And, and that's the end, is to become as the tree of life. And that requires a sowing of seeds. And you've been spreading your seeds elsewhere, unfortunately. I am taken by what you were saying a little earlier, but this change of the name from no mercy to mercy and not my people to be my people. And that, that whole covenant phrase of I will be your God and you will be my people is part of that, that relationship of safety, that relationship of trust, that relationship of absolute power because the Lord is the husband and we are as a people we are his wife and that that just gives me so much joy but that, that is that covenant phrase of i will be your god and you will be my people and that's what we want it's kind of like well done thou good and faithful servant but it's what we want here on this in this sphere yeah in fact hosea 2 verse 16 is an interesting verse along these lines what you were just saying scott where he says and it shall be at that day saith the lord Thou shalt call me Ishi. And you see in your footnote, that's husband. Thou shalt call me no more Baali, which is master, which is where we get the idea of Baal from, which is master, is, is he's giving us things. He's providing us. In verse 14 of that same chapter 2, he says, I will allure her 
speaking of Gomer, his his wife, or Israel, us, uh, how does God allure us? What, what does he do? What are the promises that he, he's not trying to turn us into merchants. He's trying to turn us into a spouse, uh, this relationship with a healthy relationship. So he's going to bring us into the wilderness in verse 14 and and there's not judge us and be, but speak comfort, comfortably to her where take us away from those places where we are destroying ourselves, take us into the wilderness. It could be very difficult, but there are these words of comfort. And, and as we know, there's something called the comforter, which is actually also a person where he provides this comforter to give us these promises that, that life with this bridegroom is far more beautiful than whoring after my false gods. It seems to be the imagery all throughout the uh, the chapters one and two. I think sometimes we grow up with the notion that God is hard to find because he doesn't want to be found, that we have to um, do impossibly difficult things to find him. And and it's questionable whether we ever will. And it's just the opposite. That is such a lie that has been thrust upon our psyches because God wants to be found of us. He tells us that. But more than that, he wants to be connected to us and with a bond that will not break. He wants that. He wants to be close to me. So who controls the distance? I do. You know, sometimes I don't see him clearly. I don't see how much I want to be close to him. And I think that's where it breaks down. You know, I will be your husband. Well, we say as human beings in a mortal sphere, well, I don't know what I want. I think I, you know, want something instant and easy, you know? And he's saying, oh, yes, but the comfort is here. The love of is here. The knowledge of who you are and what is, is here. And I want this. I love the way the Lord really pleads with his children and offers everything. And it's us who are resistant. Well, and that leads me to the verse 19 of chapter two. We were almost there with Patrick just a second ago. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. There is that reference to hased, which is this, this powerful love that is so great and fills really the immensity of the universe. It is God's love that is so powerful. It's what causes him to create worlds because he loves his children. He loves us so much that he would create a world for us. That is that Hebrew word hesed. And I love that he wants to betroth us unto him forever. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage. I, um, yeah, that word betrothed, it can be rendered many times as what we would say in English as to woo. <laughs> he is wooing us. He is romancing us. He's, he's in fact, that uh, one of the gifts he's promising us in chapter two, verse 15 is the Valley of Achor. He, there, there as in the days of her youth, shall, you will sing there. And this Valley of Achor is, uh, again, a perfect image for what is going on with Gomer and Israel. In the beginning of times, this is the treachery at Ai, where it was a place of judgment where a covenant had been broken. And so there, there's blood that is required. And But it's a very fertile valley. It's, it's a beautiful valley that goes from judgment to a valley verdant and lush and, and teeming with life. And that valley of Achor becomes an image to the house of Israel of what was sown in blood can be reaped in fruitfulness. And what God is promising to do with us, 
maybe, in fact, you can see the names coming back again, circling full circle in the end of chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, where he says, the earth shall hear the corn or wheat grains and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And remember, Jezreel means to sow, but I will sow her unto me in the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. I will have mercy, remember what the other child's uh, children's names are, upon her that hath not obtained mercy. And I will say unto them that were not my people, thou art my people. And they shall say, thou art my God. Uh, you learn later in Hosea what time this will come, what period of time. You see at the end of chapter 3, uh, verse 5, it's in the latter days that this is really going to be coming to fruition is in the latter days. I've heard uh, in the Holy Land, uh, one Jewish man called the Hosea chapter three, the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament of the Tanakh, because uh, it, it all comes together to this price of redemption. And and I, I think what is lost on many uh, of our good brothers of the house of Judah is the purchase price of what Hosea is willing to give to redeem Gomer uh, and, and the purchase price of her debt. If you look at verse two, where the word redeemer means to purchase or to redeem, uh, I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for an homer of barley and a half homer of barley. And if you look at that price, it's fascinating because you have the 15 pieces of silver, but also a homer of barley is equivalent to about five bushels and a half a homer was about two and a half bushels. The total price combined is equal to approximately 30, 30 shekels of silver which is the price of a slave in, in Exodus 21. It's also the price that Judas Iscariot betrayed our Lord. And you see that in the Gospel of Matthew, that the purchase price of redemption was, was the price of blood. But in the New Testament, it was, a, it was a price of his blood. And the conclusion in verse 3 of chapter 3, I said unto her, Thou sh shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot. For thou shalt not be for another man, so I will also be for thee. The children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince, without a sacrifice, without an image, without an ephod, without teraphim. Afterwards shall the children of Israel return. And you see this image in verse 5 of the great gathering of Israel of coming back because of the purchase price for redemption, which is the price our Lord paid. And in fact, that covenant in chapter 6, uh, where he says, come and return. This is chapter six, verse one. Uh, For he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us. You'll see when this is done. Verse two of chapter six, after two days will he revive us in the third day. He will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. And then in the latter rains will come and bless us. And you see, it's the third day. The, the covenant is always confirmed on the third day. You see this at Mount Sinai when God manifests his power on the third day. And then our Lord on the Feast of Firstfruits comes forth from the tomb, bringing new life on the third day. And, and all these things are going to come to a head in the great ingathering harvest of the house of Israel in the latter days. It makes you want to be a part of that. I mean, this long prophesied thing that is so glorious. How privileged we are to be Latter-day Covenant Israel and to be called upon to gather Israel on both sides of the veil. It is exactly what we're seeing here. Well, and President Nelson is emphasizing this right now. He says, Heavenly Father and Jesus will do some of their mightiest works between now and the time of the second coming. And we've seen a lot of mighty works already. We've seen the restoration unfolding for 
you know, all these years, and yet it's going to be even more. It'll be just so fantastic. It just makes me so excited. And this part that we were just reading together is just beautiful. Patrick, thank you for illuminating that for us. That was just beautiful. Maybe just one more, if that's okay, from um, uh, from Hosea 14. Again, we're talking about the timing of all this. Uh, maybe the last chapter of chapter 14, where there is, is, is a huge conclusion to this poetry and this prophecy, where the Lord says in verse 4, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. And he's ta- the Lord is talking about uh, Ephraim. Ephraim is idiomatic for the northern kingdom, yes, but Ephraim is the leading tribe. Ephraim in the last days is this birthright tribe, blessed with a double portion who has a responsibility of ingathering in Israel. And so chapter 14 is also a prophecy about the tribe of Ephraim in the last days. But you look what the tribe of Ephraim will be responsibly responsible for doing. Verse 6 of chapter 14, his branches, Ephraim's branches, shall spread. His beauty shall be as the olive tree, and his smell as Lebanon. And look at this interesting statement of, of reality in the last days through Ephraim. They that dwell under his shadow, Ephraim's shadow, shall return. They shall revive as the wheat or the corn, shall grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Israel, Ephraim in the last days, shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. And you'll, you're see, we're, we're living in that day where Ephraim is leading the house of Israel, bringing forth the fruits of God's tree, this tree of life, that uh, are providing the covenants necessary to bring about the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of God, what God is trying to do, what he's been trying to do with the house of Israel. And it's coming to quite literally a fruition in the last days. That's so beautiful. I have another comment about chapter 11, because Hosea says, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. And of course, we think about that as being the children of Israel being called out of Egypt. But in Matthew, we realize that it is the Lord as well who spends time in Egypt and is called out of Egypt. And I think it's a beautiful prophecy that I have always loved about these parallel experiences. The nation of Israel, the covenant children, were really come out of Egypt and are really born as they cross through the Red Sea. But Christ himself will also come out of Egypt because the Lord has called his son out of Egypt, which is interesting. And why that and why that parallel is a fascinating question. And you'll see Egypt, the coming out of Egypt, how Nephi uses that image, where where the coming out of Egypt is the great story throughout the entire Old Testament that all these prophets are hearkening back to. But then you see what the New Testament does with that. And, and with Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, talking about how the crossing of the Red Sea is, is a type for our coming through the waters of baptism and how this coming out of Egypt is a type and a shadow of coming out of the world, Egypt being this image of the world. And, and you'll see that in the Doctrine and Covenants, section one, the preface of the Doctrine and Covenants, coming out of Egypt or Idumea is another image being used of this. And what is the process by which we come out of the world? And going back to that Exodus story of through a covenant, 
following the prophetic uh, leadership, living on the bread of life, living on the living waters. And all these are images that are coming out of wandering in the wilderness of sin for 40 years, which is indicative of, of a probationary state. And Jesus even borrows that in John 5 with the pool of Bethesda, a man who's invalid for 38 years. And and that, that's the exact same time frame that Israel was in, wandering in the, in, in the wilderness of sin, was 38 and a half years right in there. And and so this man at Bethesda becomes indicative of the house of Israel. And so Jesus himself is using the Exodus as a motif for we're growing up in God and receiving a fullness of the Holy Ghost. And, and that story of Bethesda culminates with the man being in the temple, praising God in the temple, leaping and praising God in the temple. And it's always this story of going back to Exodus in Egypt and leaving Egypt and coming into the land of promise. It makes you so excited to just dig deeper and learn and see all these patterns and all of this perfect symbolism and this perfect patterns that the Lord gives us in these amazing scriptures, both in the Old and in the New Testament. Now, there is a passage here in Hosea 12 that really caused uh, my mind to just become alive uh, when I was much younger, and that's uh, Hosea 12 verses 9 and 10 where the Lord says, And I that am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt will yet make thee to dwell in tabernacles. This is the idea of the Feast of Booths, the seventh sacred feast of the house of Israel, always celebrating the fall season, as in the days of the solemn feast. But then he says this, I have also spoken by the prophets. So how does God speak? He says, I've spoken by the prophets. I've also multiplied visions. I have used similitudes now note this phrase, by the ministry of the prophets. We are meant to see the ministry of the prophets as similitudes and likenesses of our journey into our promised land, being led by Joshua or Yeshua across the Jordan River, uh, baptism coming into our promised land. And it's, it is fascinating to, to know that the, the house of the crossing, Bethabara, is the place, culminates and celebrates this idea of of crossing through the out of the world into God's land of promise, which is an immersion. Uh, as we get on and stay on the covenant path, God will lead us into his promised land. It's, the catch is, is keeping him as, as our covenant uh, husband and not going after these false gods like Gomer was doing. So how do we come to that knowledge of God that we've been talking about? Everyone wants to come to that knowledge. And the worst thing we can think of is being taken from that knowledge, of having it taken from us, of, of not having a prophet who could speak to us. How do we come to that knowledge? Yeah, Hosea 4 gives the warning and the consequence of that exact thing, uh, where he says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because thou hast rejected knowledge. I will also reject thee that thou shalt be no priest to me, saying thou hast forgotten the law. See, that's a key phrase right there, that the law doesn't exist to condemn us. The law is the process by which we come to know God, his characteristics, his perfections, his attributes. I, uh, arguably, one of the best passages in my life is in the Doctrine and Covenants that deals with this same idea. Doctrine and Covenants 19, verse 23, is he says, learn of me and listen to my words, then walk in the meekness of my spirit, and then you shall have peace in me. I see that process is taught in Hosea here, but Hosea does it through chapters 4 through 10. It takes many chapters to do that, but the idea is 
what happens when you are lacking in knowledge is we are left to ourselves. We, we tend to worship that image, the, the false image that's in the mirror. We are called to be the image of God. We are created in his image to be his image. But when we forget the Lord and we we become a lawn to ourselves, as the scriptures say, then, then we start drifting. And so when the doctrine comes, invites us to learn of him and to listen to his words and walk in his, then this covenantal renewal, this love is rekindled in our lives. But we, we tend to forget his law. And, and well, as the doctrine and covenant says, again, where they seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way after the image of his own God, whose image is in the likeness of the world or Egypt. There's a standard outside of us, and that is God. It should never be ourselves. It should always be God that is our standard. And the, the law exists to bring us to him. It's a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So Paul said in Galatians 3. Well, and I think you can't get the knowledge you want except you take the time and you pull yourself away from all the distractions of the world and begin to put things together that you never would. I think deep study gives you so much knowledge accompanied of course and directed by the spirit but what different people we would be if we didn't fill our lives with distraction instead of understanding more about the deep knowledge that is available to us i know i am a different person when i am taking a lot of time in the scriptures and studying than when i am running chores forgetting what i'm about and i love that now let's make a switch here and go to Joel, because Joel is a really important book to us, um, in part because when Joseph Smith prayed and Moroni came to visit him in his room, Moroni gave him many, many scriptures. But there is a scripture in Joel too, a series of scriptures that Moroni particularly gave him. And I'm interested why that would be the case. So let's first talk about those scriptures, what they are, and then and then why why this might be important for the head of the dispensation of the fullness of times. Starting in verse 28 of chapter 2, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit and I will shew wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord hath said and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So yes, it, he he brought this scripture, Moroni brought this scripture among others to Joseph. And, but Peter also thought of the day of Pentecost that this was the fulfillment of this prophecy of Joel. And then in October of 2001, President Hinckley declared that this prophecy was fulfilled now. And I think it's fascinating that we can have multiple fulfillments of prophecies. The Lord speaks in transcendent ways. He gives prophecies that are much deeper than our language. And he, like Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, that scripture about the mountain of the Lord's house being established in the top of the mountains, we kind of think, well, that was definitely fulfilled with the building of the Salt Lake Temple. 
but it's fulfilled every time we build a temple. And President Hinckley also said when we dedicated the big conference center, he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled. So this multiple fulfillment of prophecies is fascinating to me. Well, and Moroni said to Joseph when he gave him this scripture that this had not been fulfilled yet, but was about to be. So, Patrick, your thoughts about these incredible and important verses in Joel? Yeah, I think it is, especially the language from Moroni is very curious, which you just said, Maureen. He says um, that it was not yet fulfilled, but was soon to be when Peter clearly said in Acts chapter 2, as he quotes it, standing up at 11, it says this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is the idea of what our prophets call pattern prophecy, actually, just not our prophets. Uh, Hebrew scholars call it pattern prophecy. The idea is that prophecies, we come from a Western mindset, a classical mindset from Rome and Greece, the idea that a prophet makes a prediction and there's going to be a fulfillment sometime in the future. And that's not the ancient Near Eastern perspective on, on prophecy. Instead, an ancient Near Eastern prophecy is the idea that there is a pattern that all of creation is tingling with God all around us. And if you recognize the pattern, the pattern gets established and it keeps repeating itself. Not that history repeats itself, but there are echoes of it over and over. And clearly when God pronounces one thing, you can recognize what is happening in the future by that same pattern being repeated. Scott, you mentioned Isaiah 2 with the, the house of the Lord being established in the top of the mountains. That's Is it the, the Jerusalem temple or is that temples in the last days? And we would say the answer to that would be yes, right? And that's how it is. Is um, You see that with the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. Clearly, that's a, a historical event going on, but it will be repeated again on, on that, that same mountain ridge, you know, 2,000 years later. So these are pattern prophecies. Maybe another thing to consider here also is why is Moroni, of all passages that Moroni could quote, why is that one of them that he is quoting? It's fascinating to see when Peter quoted it on the day of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. This Feast of Weeks, 50 days after the Passover celebration, is a celebration of of when God, God issues his law on Mount Sinai, where God's law gets thundered forth. Then 50 days after Passover, well, on when God's spirit enters into these early disciples at the Feast of Pentecost, in the Old Testament, it was God's law that was thundered forth. Now on the Feast of Weeks in the New Testament, God's law is a spirit. It's, it's the Holy Ghost that, that enters into them. And, and it's this union of God's law and his spirit. Uh, it's also the traditional day when Enoch was taken up to heaven as people. That's what the Jews would say uh, also on this particular day. So why is Moroni quoting this? And, and the prophet President Gordon B. Hinckley, because I really do believe what Joel is talking about here, where we have young people, old people who have the law, living the law, but the law, as Jeremiah said, is on our inward parts, written in our, on our hearts, or as Paul says, the fleshy tables of our hearts, where there's wonders in the heavens and in the earth. When, when our Lord prays in Matthew 6, his Lord's prayer, that thy kingdom come, by thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's this union of God's law above and the law that's within our hearts. And then we have these prophecies, these devis- these eschatological uh, prophecies of the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. Those are That's interesting imagery, especially as we talk about what the, the imagery of the moon and what the moon is in a symbolic expression of God's people, his church, being clothed with blood also. 
and, and what that means and what does it look like to be covered with the blood um, in, in addition to the destructions that are coming in the last days. But Joel's prophecy in verse 32, where he says, I think this is the, the key to the whole thing, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. It's, it's not calling on the Lord, it's calling on the name of the Lord. And, and that's covenant language right there. It's not just about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's keeping that covenant relationship. When do we receive the name of the Lord or signify that we're willing to take upon ourselves his name? It's always, it's a covenant language right there. And he says, shall be delivered for in, in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord has said that in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. And that's in the last days where the God is making this call. So Joel's prophecy about the day of the Lord, there are, uh, where he, he began his book about the locust and this time of the day of the Lord's judgments in the past has been executed. But in the last days where all things are renewed and his judgments are poured out will also happen in the last days. As the powers of the world were like locust in the, in the early days, the powers of the uh, of the world will be manifested like locusts in the last days, and the salvation shall only be found in learning to make and keep a sacred covenant. That's what you're saying about the name of the Lord right here. It's a fascinating prophecy. And significantly, right after that, the Lord reveals his priesthood to Joseph Smith in the, in the church history. It's a fascinating passage. It does seem like we have some parallels here that the battle of Armageddon, when all the nations of the world will come against the people of the Lord, against Jerusalem, but the people of the Lord, when this great battle between good and evil will happen, it will also be accompanied later with these incredible outpourings of the Spirit, and during, with these incredible outpourings of the Spirit for those who have been faithful to the Lord. And it seems like this is what we can see in these verses as well, that somehow, no matter what the terrible or what to us may look overwhelming experiences that come to this earth, there will still be the spirit with those who have it and great and mighty things will happen. Yeah, in fact, there is, uh, Maureen, amen to that, especially with President Nelson's most recent comments and conference. But you see some deliberate imagery of the Book of Mormon and the coming forth of the restoration in Joel chapter 2. If you go back to Joel 2, verse 23, where the Lord says, Be glad then, you children of Zion. I mean, he, he drops this right in the midst of all this judgment. You know, where is their God? He, uh, people are asking in verse 17. Be glad then, you children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God. And here comes the imagery for the last days. For he hath given you the former rain moderately. And he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. Now, that's a fascinating reference in, in the Holy Land. What they call the, the former rains are all, the, the spring season. The latter rains are always the fall season. And you have these three feasts in, in the spring season, three feasts in the fall season, with Pentecost being the bridge between these, uh, these three in the spring, three in the fall. And it's fascinating because the first month of the latter rains in verse 23 is is the Feast of Trumpets. Well, the Lord said in verse 15 of that same chapter, blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a psalm assembly. It's time to call Zion together on Rosh Hashanah, this, this ingathering harvest, and where it relates to the last days and the restoration. It is of interest, I believe, and, and not without significance, that when Joseph Smith received the plates, the gold plates from Moroni, 
on September 22nd of 1827. It happened to be on our calendar, the Feast of Trumpets on that particular day. Uh, we use a solar calendar. They use a lunar calendar. So it never really coincides equally every single year. But in 1827, the instrument by which God is going to gather Israel on the Feast of Trumpets in the last days is the book that God is coming forth from the tribe of Ephraim and jo or Joseph that is designed to gather Israel to cause rejoicing in Zion. Uh, you see this imagery of former reigns, latter reigns, uh, young people, old people prophesying the laws written on their inward parts, and this gathering in this middle chapter of how God is going to prepare his people. It's gathering together with a book that will establish the doctrine and priesthood that will confirm it in the covenant. It's an incredible passage. And young men seeing visions, the very young man in that very time that you're referring to. That's just such a beautiful fulfillment. We have loved being with you today. We have loved having Patrick Dane with us. It is a delightful experience for us to be in your homes and hopefully in your hearts as we are talking about these sacred things. Next week, we'll be discussing Amos, the book of Amos and the book of Obadiah in a lesson entitled, Seek the Lord and Ye Shall Live. We're grateful to Paul Cardall for the music which accompanies this podcast and to our producer, Michaela Proctor Hutchins. Don't forget to take a look at the Come Follow Me calendar for the New Testament. You can find it at latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash 2023. Have a wonderful week and see you next time.